Myanmar's former state councillor Aung San Suu Kyi gets handed yet another arbitrary prison sentence by the military junta that deposed her. Meanwhile, Malaysia's former Prime Minister Najib Razak launches a new legal effort to wriggle free of his own jail time. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Simon Tranhutis. Today is August 18th, 2022. On today's show... Well, even during the campaign season, uh, he was not uh, very vocal about uh, issues on human rights and also about engagements with uh, China. But uh, of course, what the Filipinos would want to hear from him would be uh, the economic recovery plan. That was Chester Calbaza, president and founder of the International Development and Security Cooperation in the Philippines. He chatted with Greg and Alina Noor in the Philippines to discuss how the new Marcos presidential administration is going and to check in on the state of the U.S.-Philippine alliance. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Jared Tupola in the studio. Jared is the program manager and research associate at the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative and the Stevenson Ocean Security Project here at CSIS. Jared, welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's so exciting to have you on. You just started at CSIS. How, how many months ago now? Uh, we're coming up on three. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Glad we could have you on. Okay, so for our first news story, Jared, uh, what do you have for us today? First up, Myanmar's deposed leader Aung San Suu Kyi was sentenced to six additional years in prison on Monday, August 15th. This was actually the fourth round of criminal verdicts against the 77-year-old Nobel Peace Prize laureate and officially puts her total jail sentence to 17 years. Wow, so it sounds like basically the junta is trying to eliminate any chance of her staging a political comeback. Exactly. The special court inside a prison compound within Naypyidaw accused her of four corruption charges related to misusing funds of the Da Kin Chi Foundation, a charity named after her late mother that promoted education and public health. While Suu Kyi has denied all the charges and her lawyers are expected to appeal, they have been forbidden from revealing information about the proceedings due to a military-imposed gag order. Yeah, uh, not good at all. Speaking of judicial appeals, Simon, can you give us a rundown of what's happening in Malaysia? Yeah, so I'm glad you asked. Former Prime Minister Najib Razak began his final appeal to overturn a 12-year prison sentence he received by Malaysia's high court. He has been convicted of various things, including breach of trust, abuse of power, and at the bottom of it all, misappropriating about $4.5 billion from his own country's sovereign wealth fund, Satu Malaysia Development Berhad, also known as 1MDB. For those of us who aren't quite familiar, can you tell us more about the 1MDB scandal? <laughs> sure. So buckle up. This is always a wild story to tell. Uh, 1MDB was a sovereign wealth fund Najib set up shortly after taking power in 2009. For those who don't know, a sovereign wealth fund is kind of like a big, gigantic investment account. But instead of the money being for a single person or firm, it's for an entire country to make strategic investments. Anyway, 1MDB was meant to grow Malaysia's wealth and help alleviate poverty. But instead, $4.5 billion went missing. And it turns out it was laundered into accounts and shell companies all over the world. And $700 million of that $4.5 billion was actually found in Najib's personal account. I'd like to send him a Venmo request. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the revelations triggered uh, national protests and eventually led to Najib and his ruling coalition's downfall in 2018. 
In July of 2020, Najib was sentenced to 12 years, and the conviction was recently upheld by an appeals court in December. And that's kind of where we are. Najib's legal team has now just asked permission to submit new evidence alleging a conflict of interest by the judge who handed down the original 12-year sentence. And, of course, unlike our last story's defendant, Najib has been out on bail pending his final appeal. But if this bid fails, his jail time could start immediately. Well, you know what they say, the chickens always come home to roost. <laughs> uh, and I hear we were done with Malaysian chicken puns. Okay, so in other news, Vietnam is building a high-speed rail. Jared, would you like to tell us more about this new proposal? But of course, Vietnam's Ministry of Transport will submit a $58.7 billion proposal to build a 1,545-kilometer railway connecting Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City. The plan is to have the first two sections, about 665 kilometers in length, completed and open to traffic by 2032, which would require about a $25 billion investment. The old line would then be relegated for transporting freight. The ministry hopes to begin construction by 2028, with the entire project to be completed sometime between 2045 and 2050. Very fascinating. All right, moving on to our third story, Indonesian President Joko Jokowi Widodo delivered his annual budget speech this Tuesday, outlining how the government aims to bring fiscal discipline back on track and bring down the deficit back below the government's legally mandated limit of 3% of GDP. Wow, I didn't know it was so low for Indonesia. Definitely a different world compared to what we have over here in the United States. I imagine spending has gone up during the pandemic, right, Simon? So how will Jokowi pull this off? Sure. So yes, Indonesia has raised its spending, like almost every country in the world, to help it recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. But Indonesia actually has been remarkably disciplined with its deficit spending historically. So this is just kind of returning to that. In the new budget, Jokowi is calling for cutbacks on pandemic stimulus and some social programs. The budget also set higher infrastructure spending for relocating the capital from Jakarta to the new city of Nusantara on the island of Borneo, or as they call it, Kalimantan. The budget should be helped by comparatively high windfalls due to a surge in global commodity prices, of which Indonesia is a major exporter. Speaking of Indonesia, did you hear the election news, Simon? Do tell, Jared. Indonesian Defense Minister Prabowo Subianto accepted the Gurindra Party's nomination to run in the 2024 presidential election. This would actually be his third bid for presidency, and so far, polls have shown him as one of the top three candidates alongside Central Java Governor Ganjar Pranowo and the Governor of Jakarta, Anis Bansuedan. Thanks for that update, Jared, and that brings us to our last news story. The Philippines has scrapped a deal to buy 16 MI-17 Russian transport helicopters out of fears of U.S. sanctions. So instead, the country is now in talks to buy heavy-lift Chinook helicopters from the United States. Ambassador of the Philippines to the United States, Jose Manuel Romualdez, confirmed that the Chinooks would be replacing hardware used for the movement of troops and in disaster preparedness in the Philippines, a welcome initiative considering the country's susceptibility to climate-induced displacement and disasters. The country is still in talks with Russia to recover its $38 million down payment for the helicopters, which was previously set to be delivered in November of next year. <laughs> Nothing more stressful than trying to get your security deposit fully refunded, right? <laughs> all right. Well, those are the headlines. Thank you, Jared, for stopping by. The pleasure was all mine, Simon. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Chester Cabalza, president of the International Development and Security Cooperation in the Philippines. So stay tuned. 
Hi, listeners. Welcome back. I'm Greg Poling. This is Southeast Asia Radio. And after a long four-week delay, I'm finally rejoined by my partner in crime, Alina Noor. Yes. Hello, everyone. Good to be back. And today, Alina and I are joined by our good friend, Chester Cabalza. Hello. Chester is uh, here with me in Manila, and Alina yeah. is in Kuala Lumpur, so we're at least on the same time zone, making this possible. Chester, before we get into a conversation, why right. don't you give the listeners your bona fides? Where are you, where are you right. working these days, and what are you working on? Hi, I'm Chester Gabalza. I uh, founded my own organization. It's called the International Development and Security Cooperation. I also work at the Development Academy of the Philippines and also with the University of the Philippines. So basically, it's a government and academic institutions uh, all together. So you see me all around <laughs> in the Philippines. <laughs> so Chester is here with me taking part in a, a workshop on U.S.-Philippine-Australia relations. That's not entirely what we're going to talk about today. I just thought this would be a great time to check in with the new Marcos government in the Philippines right. and how things are going in the U.S.-Philippine alliance. Mm. So maybe we can start things off by just asking Chester... How are things going in the Philippines? It's been, uh, what, six weeks or so by the right. time people listen to this since the new government took office. Yes, we have a new president. Uh, he's the uh, son of uh, Ferdinand Edrilina Marcos. We call him uh, Bongbong Marcos. The point here is that uh, the Philippines have a new uh, populist president. Of course, that's a fact. And basically, as a president, uh, what would be uh, his um, uh, policies? I think uh, he's more into uh, agriculture, food security, basically. I think that was his announcement during his uh, first uh, inaugural address, basically. And of course, we have also uh, listened uh, to his uh, foreign policy in which he uh, talks about the sacredness of our territory. And uh, he really would want to give a chance for the um, arbitration uh, ruling that uh, we won in 2016. And uh, right now, of course, um, one of the uh, policies that uh, we're expecting from him would be his position on uh, how he deals with us two uh, superpowers right now in the region. So, Alina, why don't, why don't you, because you've been missing from the, the ears, but I'm sure not the hearts of our listeners, why don't you jump in and get us started? Yeah, so just... Uh... I don't think I've actually met you in person. So this is my first time seeing you in a way virtually. I mean, I have a ton of questions for you, but you just mentioned in passing Bongbong Marcos's inaugural address before Congress. And I was wondering if I could get your take on whether it was what you expected, because it was a lot of criticism, as we all know, about President Marcos's non-policy throughout his campaign. Excuse the expression. But do you think he overcame that criticism in his address to Congress? Well, even during the campaign season, uh, he was not uh, very vocal about uh, issues on uh, human rights and also about engagements with uh, China. But uh, of course, what the Filipinos would want to hear from him would be uh, the economic recovery plan. I think he pronounced a lot of that uh, during his inaugural address. That was the first phase of his speech, basically. And then, of course, the focus on uh, food sovereignty, which I think would be his um, uh, goal uh, in, his, uh, in the entirety of his administration. And I think what was lacking there would be how these plans on the economic recovery would be viable to everyone, because I think that has been the problem also where would, uh, who would finance his uh, infrastructure program, because uh, th those were uh, things that he mentioned during uh, the uh, inaugural speech also. And I think 
Another things that are hanging basically would be the uh, foreign policy, which I think uh, we are still uh, waiting what would be the bulk of uh, that independent foreign policy that uh, he was talking about uh, in his inaugural speech. So basically, those are some of the things that we have to look at. It was noticeable that during Secretary Antony Blinken's visit mm. to Manila just last week, in uh, his first meeting with President Marcos, of course, they were meeting while Chinese missiles are dropping mm. around ports in Taiwan, and you couldn't help but, but raise the issue. So when the Philippine press asked President Marcos about this, his response was to say, this is evidence of why we need a closer U.S.-Philippine relationship, which was, I'm sure, refreshing mm. for Washington after six years of slings and arrows from the Duterte government. I, I think Washington has been, they were cautiously optimistic about Marcos going right. in. They've so far been pretty happy with what they see. Do you think the alliance is going to continue on this upward trajectory? Well, uh, of course, uh, that is the um, hope of the uh, policymakers here here in the Philippines. Uh, you know, during the uh, previous administration, that was uh, the problem because, uh, of course, the past administration yielded its um, uh, connection with Washington and, of course, uh, engaged much with uh, Beijing and we saw, saw this uh, economic and uh, diplomatic approachments. But at the same time, with the new government now, they are very open uh, in their um, lines with Washington and, of course, Beijing is still there as a white elephant in the room, but uh, technically the alliance will uh, continue because given uh, the insecurities in the regional architecture right now uh, with what happened in Taiwan, I think uh, these are some of the uh, signals that uh, we need uh, the alliance and uh, the alliance will have to continue. Although, of course, in the statement recently uh, during the visit of Secretary Blinken, it says there that uh, the security bilateral relations will have to evolve because of the uh, changing times and uh, definitely uh, that will have to carve out in uh, the national security strategy and also in our foreign policy. So for those of us who don't follow Philippines uh, Mm. domestic politics or domestic developments very closely, can you say a little about what President Marcos's cabinet means or signals uh, for the Philippines foreign policy? Well, um, of course, right now, if I have to assess it, it's a balancing act for the Philippines because, of course, um, we have a a treaty alliance with the United States and uh, we recognize that and we're happy about the recommitment of uh, the United States uh, with uh, these military ties with us and uh, definitely uh, that will have to uh, continue. And uh, we know for a fact also that uh, there's uh, another uh, power uh, in our uh, neighbor, uh, basically, and uh, that is inevitable because of uh, its uh, proximity and also because of uh, their own uh, interest uh, with the Philippines. But nonetheless, if uh, I were to uh, say it uh, to others about uh, this uh, Filipino uh, foreign policy that we have, in short, uh, we can call it, uh, we're, we're trying to spell out the independent foreign policy, which up to now has become um, unclear to some. But uh, nevertheless, of course, uh, the alliance that we have with the United States is uh, clear and we recognize that and we're very uh, happy about uh, this uh, continuing alliance. And I think it will become a robust in the future. I mean, you and I and about... 38 other people are going to be talking about this for the next two days yeah. in, in our workshop, which I'm afraid is is Chatham House rules, so mm. the, the listeners don't get to hear. But, but I think a lot of the background is going to be that we are finally having the kinds of mature, honest mm. discussions about the meaning and the extent of the U.S.-Philippine alliance that we've been avoiding for decades. I mean, yeah. after the end of the Cold War, every other U.S. alliance in the region, particularly Japan and Australia, um, but eventually the ROC, 
also evolved mm. to deal with this new security environment. Mm. And if you look at, you know, Japan, Australia, the alliance has never been closer. And that's because those countries have made themselves invaluable to the United States in the same way that the U.S. is invaluable to them. Mm. The Philippines alliance, you know, we've, we've been unwilling to have these conversations about what the alliance means. What do we expect of each other? What does the Philippines demand of the United States? And what does the United States expect in return? Yeah on contingencies, not just in the South China Sea, but in Taiwan. Right. And the moment that we're in now with Chinese missiles dropping off Kaohsiung mm-hmm. and potentially into the Philippine EEZ, mm-hmm. I, I would suspect is crystallizing these conversations. Mm-hmm. And while people wouldn't have expected this a few years ago, the fact that we have Bong Bong Marcos mm-hmm. and what is a remarkably professional bureaucratic cabinet in place mm. right now suggests that this is exactly the right time and the right people to be having these conversations. Or maybe I'm overly optimistic mm. given that I'm, you know, back in Manila and mm. getting to travel again and just feeling the, the spirit. Well, I, agree, I totally agree with your observation, Greg, but let's put it into context because uh, basically we have to look at it in two layers there. Yes, I agree that the technocrats and the composition of the cabinet members are um, solid and in terms of their qualifications, they're really qualified in their uh, positions. But there's also the gap on how to translate uh, policymaking uh, to ordinary Filipinos because, of course, not all Filipinos grasp these uh, high-falluting uh, policies given that, uh, of course, when you uh, discuss this to ordinary people, they want to discuss about food security and, of course, um, their employment basic things because, of course, uh, the nature and structure of our government and the uh, economic standing of our country. But nonetheless, again, you have to remember that even if we have this uh, high level of uh, policy when it comes to independent foreign policy and uh, with our alliance with the United States, I think the Philippines uh, will have to also consider uh, one of its uh, national uh, interests in Taiwan, which is our overseas Philippine of, uh, workers. And we cannot compromise also uh, our interest there. That's the reason why uh, we are into this uh, kind of a balancing act. But uh, secondly, on the uh, second layer, uh, if you translate that, this is not something about the U.S.-China or U.S.-Philippines, uh, but uh, how are we going to deal with this uh, problem given that uh, we are uh, sandwiched by circumstances? And uh, definitely... We also uh, have to consider that uh, there are um, interests coming from our neighbor also when it comes to their um, um, uh, Taiwan policy. And uh, definitely, if that happens, then uh, I think worst case scenario, if uh, China retakes uh, Taiwan by force, then uh, definitely the Philippines will become buffers on, um, of uh, China. So that's a fact that may happen in the future. But if we try to uh, consider uh, some of the um, policy imperatives here, I think that the government will really have to play uh, its cards and uh, definitely uh, will have to consider that the alliance will have to sustain our uh, relationship with the United States. Chester, you mentioned earlier on that President Marcos was a little muted on, and perhaps unsurprisingly so, about human rights. And given what's going on in Myanmar right now, where does ASEAN figure into the Marcos administration's foreign policy? And specifically... Where does Myanmar, given the executions that have been taking place and are anticipated in the near future, what kind of stance do you think President Marcos will take or will not take with regard to what's happening in Southeast Asia's own backyard? 
Mm, that's an interesting question. You know, uh, when he became the president, the first thing that he mentioned is to ask uh, support from the uh, Association of Southeast Asian Nations and, of course, with the United Nations to, of course, reaffirm the Hague ruling uh, that we won, basically. And uh, the mere fact that he mentioned about ASEAN there, uh, that would be a prominent pronouncement coming from uh, Bongbong Marcos that he recognizes ASEAN. The mere fact that his father co-founded ASEAN is one thing. Uh, it's a part of his playbook, basically, on how to engage with the region. And uh, secondly, the, there's a mismatch or a contrast with this one because, of course, he was very consistent about the uh, issues of human rights. He was not able to articulate it well. Uh, we've seen that during the campaign season and during the uh, inaugural uh, first inaugural speech of Bongbong Marcos. I think, in my own surmise that uh, he will not touch about the, the issues of uh, human rights. I think that is also a problem in the region where, of course, even if we are united as, the, uh, as, uh, as an association, uh, the, the principle of non-interference uh, will still matter. And I think these are some of the things that uh, we have to uh, overhaul in the region, uh, given that, of course, uh, things are changing. And uh, definitely, we have to really discuss uh, important matters in the region like uh, human rights. So you brought up that Marco Sr. was one of the, the founding fathers of ASEAN. And it's remarkable we've gotten this far into a podcast about the new Philippine government, and we haven't talked about the legacy of the Marcos right. family really yet. I'm struck by how much history doesn't seem mm. to matter at this moment, not just in Manila, but kind of mm. globally in the response to Marcos. And that seems very intentional. So I have no doubt that there are discussions about you know, 1986 behind mm. closed doors in the palace. But we just had the state funeral of yeah. former president Fidel Ramos, yeah. who helped overthrow yeah. Marcos in 86. He received a state funeral. Famously, <laughs> former president Aquino did not receive the same treatment by yeah. Duterte. Yes. The other man who helped overthrow the Marcos estate dictatorship, Juan Ponce Relay, yeah, still alive. has a job <laughs> under the new administration. <laughs> How has Marcos done such a good job mm. of both riding to power, partially in his family's name, but right. then distancing himself from all of the real legacy? Well, that's a beautiful observation, uh, Greg. But if I will have to uh, discuss it in a succinct way, you have to watch the movie Made in Malacanang. <laughs> uh, there's a movie right now that uh, tells about the narrative of the Marcoses, and definitely it's up to you on how you would uh, view it, judge it, uh, whether it is a revisionist movie, revisionist uh, uh, in terms of uh, how you would tell their own uh, side well, no, it's of up the to, story. It's up to you. It's, yeah, you're yeah. on the podcast. But, uh, yeah, yeah, but definitely. Uh, uh, well, uh, that's, uh, that's a debate right now in my country. And uh, Filipinos, you know, uh, given that, of course, uh, the uh, 31 million of uh, Filipinos elected uh, the new president and uh, there's a huge following uh, so far with uh, his um, uh, leadership, I think that um, uh, the uh, reconstruction and the image of his father is uh, changing right now. And even uh, the narratives basically are changing. And I think uh, this goes with the uh, post-truth era or the multi-truth period that we are in right now, where we hear a lot of uh, different perspectives and how we uh, weave these uh, different narratives and stories to uh, come up with uh, the kind of truth that we wanted. And uh, for the Philippines, the side of the Marcoses, so they're saying that uh, we kept this story for 36 years. And it's now high time to tell it. And of course, for us Filipinos, okay, they are here, they're telling their stories, and uh, we wanted to listen to their narratives also. So that I think as a nation state, maybe we can uh, weave these stories together and uh, perhaps uh, reflect and think of the uh, future of our country. 
Going back to, to the observation of Greg about the state funeral given to uh, Fidel V. Ramos, actually in the movie, he was uh, demonized. And uh, <laughs> that's another thing because, of course, uh, one is doing these things, uh, good things about the, the, the FVR, um, about uh, Fidel Ramos. But, of course, in that uh, narrative uh, coming from Ivy Marcus, it's a different thing. And then you have uh, also, uh, even in, in, in the movie, Ponce really was not a sanitized her. He was basically a demonized also in that movie. But uh, nonetheless, uh, they've given an important position also to Ponce and Riley. So the point here is that the Marcus administration knows uh, how to deal with our politicians and how to uh, perhaps uh, revise uh, our history. So things are uh, changing basically in our country on how we uh, view these uh, historical facts that we have. And yet I'm impressed, maybe impressed and not the right word, I am pleasantly surprised by the fact that Marcos is not dredging up demons of the past. He mm. seems to be actively trying to bury them at, in the name of, of national unity. Unity, because yeah. his proposition is to look forward and not to look backward. And that is a clever uh, strategy coming from their family, basically. I was just going to say that this sounds like the making of a great telenovela. Yeah, it will do is. very well in Southeast Asia. But I just wanted to pick up on Chester's point and kind of ping it back to you, Greg. Because while this narrative and the changing of the narrative might work well in the Philippines uh, and in Southeast Asia, really, fortunately or unfortunately, how does this play out in Washington, though? And what does this mean for the alliance with a reconfiguration of the narrative of Bongbong Marcos coming into power, given the tainted legacy of his father? It's by intent or not, it's exactly the message that Washington needs to hear because mm. in an era of great power competition, it's clear that the Department of Defense, the White House, need the Philippines. They recognize the necessity of, of evolving and maturing the alliance, and they're willing to invest real time and energy into it in a way they haven't been in many years. And the most important thing is that the Congress not get in the way meaning that human rights violations in the Philippines not get in the way. Mm. And so this was, you know, all of these strategic imperatives were there during the Duterte era too, but there was only so far you could go. The fear with Marcos was that Marcos would either try to exact vengeance on, on past enemies, would engage mm. in human rights violations, would explicitly be an anti-democratic force. None of that is true. Yes, he's played on a populist narrative, yeah, or revisionism yeah. that, that we could, I think, fairly argue is probably not great for civil society and democratic yeah. resilience, but in the here and now, he stacked a cabinet full of competent technocrats. He said the right things about the Americans. Right. He's governing from the middle, so to speak. Mm. It's it's everything that Washington wants to hear. I mean, it's a, I think it's really the best that they could have hoped for, for the time being. Now, that said, we're mm. six weeks in, so I don't want to be overly enthusiastic, but so far, I think Washington's happy. Right. Sounds like a great opening act. Wonderful to talk to you, Chester, and I hope to eventually meet you in person soon. Hope to see you soon. <laughs> thanks, everybody, and we will uh, see you all in two weeks for the next episode. And thanks for coming back, Alina. Thank you. <laughs> Wow, what an interview. Well, I have sad news, Jared. Tell me. 
I'm leaving CSIS. Say it isn't so. No, it's true. It's true. This is going to be my last episode here with the Southeast uh, Asia program and doing Southeast Asia radio. Um, so uh, I just wanted to say to you and all our listeners and our producer, Laurel, that it's been an immense pleasure. It's been the funnest thing that I've gotten to work on here at CSIS. And it's been a real pleasure to bring to all of you listeners, you know, Southeast Asia news and analysis every week. Not to fear though, Southeast Asia radio will continue in my absence. For now, I think probably just being helped along by a team of folks at at the CSIS Southeast Asia program. But, uh, you know, I'll be uh, moving on to other things. So uh, I'll miss you guys. All right. For uh, my final time, thanks again for joining us all for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you might have. Remember, we're still a very new podcast, so do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. And don't forget to tell your friends about us. Laurel Vibitson is our producer. Our intern is Nikki Arcado. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Simon Tranhudis. And I'm Jared Tupuola. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Ciao for now. (laughs) 